0: I learned there was something in the world called a sheikh, Ah, oh, and I was, I was fascinated.
1: If you don't know Arabic and you're trying to learn your religion, it's almost as if you're a tourist in your own religion.
0: It's really well documented that women bring forth culture, that we carry forth culture. So when you cut off women from solid Islamic learning, when you just give them fluff, they're only going to be able to bring forth fluff.
1: For many of us, life is a challenge. And to find comfort in our war-stricken and AI-controlled world, it helps to ground ourselves with a timeless tradition that has the answers to all the hard questions. And that is Islam. But how do we know what's Islamically right or wrong, and what pleases our Creator and displeases Him? The answer is through seeking knowledge. And many Muslims in history have reached the peak of Islamic knowledge shaping them into our well-known classical and contemporary scholars. And that's both male and female scholars. To unpack the niche of female scholarship, especially in the modern age, we invited Dr. Tamara Gray, an Islamic scholar, author and translator who holds a master's degree in curriculum theory and instruction and a doctorate in leadership and spent 20 years in Syria studying the din. And today we asked her, what does scholarship for Muslim women really mean? Keep watching for her enlightening response.
2: A warm welcome to our guest all the way from the states, Dr. Tamara Gray. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam.
0: Rahmatullah. It's so good to be here.
2: How are you feeling today? Alhamdulillah. wonderful.
1: Are you enjoying Down Under? That's the yes, real question. Yes, very much.
0: Yes, v- very, very much enjoying Australia.
1: Yeah. We're very excited because we've been very inspired following your story. Uh, we know that, of course, subhanAllah, conversion in the 80s and then following up with that 20 years in Syria and coming back to your hometown and coming back to America and spreading your love for the deen and the education to women especially. Um, and eventually you founded Rabata. So what is the story behind Rabata? What does it mean to you? and maybe what is so unique about it that sets it aside from the other Islamic organizations?
0: So in 2012, when I left Damascus, I left thinking I was going to be away for just five months. (laughs) I was very attached to living there. I (laughs) planned to live there the rest of my life. I planned to die there and be buried there. And so with the war, I had to leave. And I arrived in Minnesota. That's where I'm from. That's where my family lives. And I moved into a little yellow house, rented next, to my, next door to my brother. And I had my son with me because he was a high schooler. And I thought, we're going to be there for five months. I'm going to see my family. We rented the house, not right away. We rented the house a little bit later when the writing sort of became clear, mm-hmm. writing on the wall, so to speak. And so as I realized I was going to stay, Two things happened. One is I started looking for a job. Mm-hmm. That's on one side. Things had changed a lot. 20 years I hadn't lived in America. Mm-hmm. And the way to find a job had changed drastically. Plus, I didn't know anyone. Mm-hmm. All of my skills and all of my speciality was built either in Damascus or in the Emirates or in Qatar or in places like this. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, during that summer, some of my students arranged a speaking tour. And so during the month of Ramadan, I traveled all across the United States, North America really, and I gave 69 talks. During that time, I met Muslim women, and I was actually really taken aback that the Muslim women in America, in the 20 years that I had been away, their situation in community, their so much just hadn't changed. Mm-hmm. It just hadn't changed. And so, in September, when I was in my little yellow house, and I was, I had not been able to find a job because I didn't know how to do it, Mm. and I was thinking about this situation that I was in. I was really grieving Syria. I missed it so much. I, I wanted to go to go back. Just yesterday, I mean, and I couldn't. I also and I had my son. Like he was now registered in high school, and I had to take care of him. My husband had gotten a job actually in Scotland. It was really complicated because mm-hmm. when you leave, we weren't refugees. But we were, because I had gone back to my own country, mm-hmm. but it was just, we were displaced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a new, a whole new situation to deal with. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was really reflecting on the state and the situation that I had met, that I'd found Muslim women in. I re- was reflecting on my own grief of having had to leave Syria. And I was reflecting on everything that Syria had given me. And while I knew I couldn't do anything to help Syria and, and get back to the healthy country that I had once lived in, I I felt like I could take what Syria had given me and offer it to the Muslim women that I had met. So when we first, I first talked to some of my students and we first talked about this, We had different ideas, and one of them was this whole idea of online learning, which is way before people were doing online learning. Mm. And for me, it was just bizarre. Like, it was so new. I had never done anything like that. Living in Syria meant that I wasn't even online in Mm. in any social media way. Mm. I was older, so my my youth was not like yours, was not like most people today. Mm. I'm not a digital native. I'm a digital immigrant. So... I didn't have that sort of background, but that's where we started. And the word Rabata is actually, it's a funny word to give to an organization because mm-hmm. it's a root word. Mm-hmm. But originally, I wanted that root word to be the name of the organization. And then I thought every project would be a derivative. Oh, like yeah. ribat, rabita, murabit, etc. Mm-hmm. Rabata. And I had, it was very clear. So our very first project was Ribat, and that's our online learning for, Mm -hmm. online academic learning for Muslim women. After that project, and we started, we wanted to move into publishing, one of my board members, she said, and say, you know, (laughs) if you, if you use all of these different terms, then the person who doesn't speak Arabic is not going to be able to differentiate Mm -hmm. between the projects. So we dropped my original idea. And our next project was Daybreak Press. So very different. We just mm-hmm. went right in, straight into English to make it clear. But nonetheless, Rabata, a I think that as a root word, it it implies all of those other words. Mm-hmm. So it implies all of those other meanings, all of those other things about bringing together the connection to one another, the connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ribat, which after some research means a lot of things. Not only the front lines, mm-hmm. which I think we are in the front lines of the cultural wars, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly where we stand, mm-hmm. especially as women in education. But it also has been used in places like Iraq to mean uh, women's shelters. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that when we first mm-hmm. chose that name, yeah. but it's a fascinating history to look mm-hmm. at how words have been used historically. Mm-hmm. So that's a maybe a, a quick summary of how things started mm-hmm. back in 2012.
2: The Arabic language has such a complexity that it can be used in so many different unique ways. And I think that stems from like, you know, the, the beauty of the language in in the way that the words kind of have different meanings, have different connections, mm-hmm. um, and they can they can really like be so expanded um a very
1: different, versatile different language. Yeah.
2: Yeah, <clears> hundred percent.
0: <throat> that helps in when in a very complicated organization like Roboto, where we're really when since our mission is positive cultural change, culture is not something that you attack or that you address with one project. So yeah. we, have, we have multiple projects, multiple programs. And so the Arabic language is really helpful because as you said, one single word can have multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I love it. I think it blankets in a very cozy, loving way all of the work we, we're trying to do.
1: What a beautiful language that Allah has selected for the people of Jannah and for his uh, final revelation.
0: Ayawallah
2: if we're looking we're looking at the importance of muslim focused you know education and education and institutes, you moved as a American river in the eighties from America to Damascus to Syria. What sort of change was that for you, and what prompted that that transition or
0: that that move okay, that's a great question, and to answer it, I have to take you back into history take to on. the eighties which I know is a long time ago. For for both of you and for many people, when you think about the eighties, it's like how I used to think about the years my own mother was in university. In the eighties, to be a Muslim in the United States, Muslim woman in the United States was a frustrating experience. If I'm honest with you, uh, we didn't have access to learning. We had the, the books that were written about Islam or about Muslim women were very frustrating to read. Either the English language itself wasn't good or the tone was very uh, um, derogatory towards women. Uh, It was just a very, it was a frustrating existence. To go to the masjid was frustrating. Mm -hmm. You didn't feel part of the community. Mm -hmm. And so I, as a convert, now converts often really struggle with culture. And so in those early years, I really struggled. I mean, I, had, I was blessed. I met some Malaysian women that were a great blessing to me and a great help to me. MashaAllah, the Malaysian culture is such a soft and spiritual culture, really, that that really came through and really helped me. But nonetheless, I was living in Minnesota. I wasn't mm-hmm. living in Malaysia. And so I was frustrated. And I, it came to a point where I remember standing on a street corner, actually grand and snelling, and just appealing to Allah Subhanahu for help that i needed someone to help me someone to set me on a way that i would not be in this fragile place i was with my faith now i've always been sort of an academic type yeah. i i loved learning even as a child and i still do i i i would be if if it was free in the united states to be in school i just would never quit i would always be studying <laughs> something new that's great but so that has been my sort of go-to to solve many of my deeper questions and deeper issues. And so I, I thought, okay, I have to study. Well, where am I going to study? And that was, in 1985, was I, nowhere. Yeah. There was nowhere. So I was really blessed. I met a woman who, was, who had studied overseas, and she had studied in Syria. And she was Syrian. And my experience with her was just like, whoa, this is so refreshing. In one week, I had 100 pages of notes on Foucault about tazkiyah, about some, of the, some sira, some companions. Just an incredible, incredible week of work. I was pushy, I admit, God bless should. her yeah but uh, but she was also so willing and so giving and so generous in her learning, and so through that conversation, I learned that there was something in the world through that week of conversations, I should say, I learned there was something in the world called a sheikh uh, oh. yeah, that there was a ta'marbuta that you could add to the end of that word, and i was I was fascinated, mm-hmm. and I, of course. There are sheikhs all over the world. But that was the first time in my life I had heard that there was such a thing at all. Mm -hmm. And she was Syrian. So I determined that I would marry a Syrian and get myself over to Syria. And so I did.
2: Beautiful. SubhanAllah. Do you think there was a big difference? Like when you got to Syria and you were in that education culture, what was the role and position of women there? In
0: leadership, in education. Well, there was such a difference, Mm. such a difference. First of all, in the United States, we're talking about very sincere people. I definitely know that. But very sincere people coming from, not from backgrounds in Islamic studies, from backgrounds in whatever engineering, medicine, professionalization that they had, really sincerely building Islamic institutions and opportunities or lack of opportunities for women based on whatever cultural experience they had had in syria i met women who were who were hafizat al-quran like that was something normal i met women who were working on their ashir qiraat later on while i lived there i met women who had finished the 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 degree or the ijazah in the seven books of hadith and we were talking about women who were deeply studying in the tradition of ahl Sunnah Jama'ah mm-hmm. in Fuqah in Sira Aqidah Hadith mm-hmm. Tafsir Tajweed like really solid ilam mm-hmm. no sort of halfway ilam it wasn't this idea where women, men are going to really learn the heavy curriculum mm-hmm. but women are going to just kind of learn a few little things yeah. no it was really an understanding the way I looked at it is it was an understanding that women carry forth culture mm-hmm. and Interestingly, later when I did my doctorate and I yeah. looked into the idea of Muslim women at, in religious leadership, one of the things I learned in, the, in just reviewing the literature is that there, it's really well documented that women bring forth culture, yes. that we carry forth culture. So when you cut off women from learning, when you cut off women from solid Islamic learning, mm. when you just give them fluff, they're only going to be able to bring forth fluff. Mm. And so the whole colonial era and so many things have affected Muslim women's learning across the board. But I really think that I was able to witness and experience women who were very serious, yet very excited and joyful about this religion and about their faith. And it wasn't sort of a a downer to be yeah. around them it yeah. was joyful, mm-hmm. and it was to, for me as a convert as well, there was a lot I needed to learn about loving the prophet Saallahlam. a lot I needed to learn about early history, things that I had learned incorrectly that as mm-hmm. a non-muslim mm-hmm. I needed to unlearn and relearn yep. and all of that happened both in the classroom but also in just meeting people, interacting with them, understanding how to live certain hadith, how to live the interaction of hadith together, how to live, because our faith is not individual hadith. Mm-hmm. Our faith is not, oh, here's a hadith, now you have to follow it. Yeah. Our faith is an interaction with the body, the corpus, if you will, mm-hmm. of hadith, the Quran, and all of this, the, the works of our early scholars that has given us adab, akhlaq, a way of living a beautiful culture there is no one in the world as, as generous as a Muslim. 100%. Even a non-practicing Muslim is still going to be incredibly generous. That's culture. Mm-hmm. That culture, that's an attitude we've learned that has got, brought, been brought forth yeah. from the time of the Prophet Wasallam. And so, I mean, the experience was completely different. I, I remember once in Syria thinking, as an American woman, I had been raised to think that, but that, you know, American women are... The confident women mm. my experience in the muslim world is that sorry american women but is that american women are like not confident at all <laughs> like syrian women mashallah and kuwaiti women oh my god like mashallah i spent a year in kuwait and that i mean the kuwaiti woman is just an amazingly capable woman as our syrian woman mm. mashallah and of course i'm sure you as well, but I that was I have I had actual lived experiences mm-hmm. with these two. And Malaysian women, I have lived experiences with them as well. So that was also really good for me, I think, because some of the myths that I grew up with, you don't always recognize the myths you grew up with. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I grew up with myths, I was able to identify them, unpack them, and replace them with truths was really important to my growth. And I think it's one of the things that helps me when I talk to people because I recognize the myths that they might be in and I've had that experience of identifying, unpacking and and reworking Mm -hmm. sort of the myths that have been given me.
2: I think being around women who are kind of in that uplifting uh, and, you know, really pursuing education and being joyful and excited for that is really empowering as well within women. I know in my personal experience, the teachers that I've had, sometimes I look at these, you know, female Ustadhas and Sheikhas that I've had and I look at them and I'm like, how do I kind of get to that same level? And I think a lot of women right now that I see, um, the younger women, middle-aged women who are, um, you know, in the West right now are kind of on that journey of seeking knowledge, but are not sure where, where to start or how to get motivated to kind of you know, get started, get that first thing kind of done, what kind of advice would you give to them?
0: Well, that question has a few different aspects. One is what is the first thing? Like what is that first thing that a woman would want to do? Mm. And then the other aspect is how do you start on a journey of learning? I think I want to answer those two differently. Yeah, uh, on one hand, what we need to learn, we, need to, we all need to start on a journey of the Arabic language. And if we look across the Arab world, forgive me, Arab world, but there's a real dearth of Arabic language learning, even in the Arab world. Yep. Like in, in the countries where Arabic is a native language, we find that schools are heavily bilingual or international. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with a bilingual or international school, but there's something wrong with our children not learning Arabic, not growing up with a strong connection to the Arabic language. And I've worked in bilingual schooling before, but the bilingual school I worked in was very sure and very careful to know that the children were learning Arabic well. Mm-hmm. When you come then to the, the wide population of Muslims, we're not all Arab, obviously. Yeah. We come from many, many different countries. And one of the ways to separate us from our faith is to separate us from our heritage books, whether that's the Quran, Hadith, or any of the books that were written in the early days, if we don't have Arabic, then we aren't dependent on a translator or someone to read them for us. Mm-hmm. And so while we're always dependent on teachers and we want teachers, we really need to have Arabic. So that's one thing. Start your Arabic journey. Start it and don't be frustrated by it. it doesn't, you don't have to be a scholar of the Arabic language to have Arabic as your tool of assistance to help you learn. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important differentiation because some people are so overwhelmed by learning Arabic. So if you remember that, okay, I don't have to be an Arabic scholar. Mm. That's a wonderful thing if you're excited about that. But I just need to learn Arabic so that I can read, I can understand what I read, and I can have an independent interaction Mm. with that book. Second, the second part of the question, which is how do I get started? How do I walk on this journey? Mm. For women, this question is very important because women have different seasons of life. And it is often much more difficult for a woman to devote sort of full-time studies for 20 years because she might have little children that are taking from her time or her physical energy. So when you're thinking about that journey, just sort of step back and relax into it and know that it's a long journey. It should be a long journey. I studied for 20 years and I'm not done. I'm still working. I just finished uh, Hadith Ijaza uh, last summer. So I mean... And I'm, I'm trying to start a new one. So, I mean, this should not be, we, it never ends. Yep. The learning never ends. So, don't get nervous about am I keeping up with the the man or am I, how fast am I going or how slow am I going? It's not, Orientalists know our religion. I just want Orientalists know Islam. They have studied, they know Hadith, they know Quran, they know all sorts of things, but they're not Muslim. Yep. So, they learned it quickly. We don't have to learn it quickly. What we want is to learn it and to, digest it, so to speak, and to live it, yep. to make it practical for ourselves, for our families, for our community. So that for the journey, just get started. Now, a lot of women think that an, a YouTube video here, a YouTube video there is going to help them learn. Yes, it will help you learn. But it's not, what, it's not learning. It's not the learning journey. You need to register in a program, get in a program where someone has studied the, the curriculum, has set a curriculum for you. So there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Of course, we have our program, Ribat, which we have spent a lot of time really looking at. We have four levels, the introductory level, Islam, Iman, Ihsan, with the idea that we're following the hadith of Angel Jibreel. But we added this introductory stage because so many people are brand new to the religion. And also sometimes because of the Arabic, we need to to do some broader learning before we Mm -hmm. get more specific. Mm -hmm. In our program, you don't have to have liturgical Arabic, if I can use that word, Mm -hmm until level four. So you have time mm-hmm. to sort of match them together. So you're learning Arabic, learning Islam, and then at one point they converge and you begin to learn Islam with the Arabic. Yeah. And I think that works well for Western for mm-hmm. Western women. One more thing about the journey is it's okay to have a lighter semester and a heavier semester it's okay to give yourself that on and off time as long as it's never fully off. Mm -hmm. There should always be some amount of learning so you don't get out of practice or begin to think about yourself that you're not a student. We always want to be students. We want to be serious about that and really enjoy that process and enjoy that learning and enjoy that growth that happens. And one more thing for Muslim women, I really recommend that you do at least part of the learning is from women. The perspectives are different. The, the, the sort of way of explanation can lighten the heart. Mm-hmm. There are some things that are still out there that if you read them with a, with a 21st century mind, it can be painful or damaging to the mm-hmm. faith to read that the explanation of something. Yeah. A woman teacher can help you because she knows she's been there. She's been through that. Someone's explained to her in this idea of senat, and she ha- can explain that in a way that becomes a joyful thing instead of something that is difficult or painful
1: and learning is fun learning is uh, a path to jannah isn't it so seeking knowledge and especially drawing on your point starting with the arabic language i've actually got an uh, an arabic mentor uh who says this very interesting quote that if you don't know arabic and you're trying to learn your religion it's almost as if you're a tourist in your own religion it's very interesting to hear your story and how you successfully learned the language. And Subhanallah, may Allah bless you, continue to learn the Sharia. So the question is, is it far more superior to learn in Arabic-speaking country or in a more Islamically traditional? So the whole, you know, studying under a scholar in that method, or is it better to complete an Islamic degree in a Western country, for instance?
0: Okay, well, those are very different things. And an Islamic degree in a Western institution in the United States, if it's an academic degree, not a seminary. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, we have seminaries. A seminary is a place where you can study your religion as a practitioner. Okay. At the university, any Western university, you're almost any, you're going to, have, you're going to be studying your religion as a critic, So that's, I mean, not everyone can survive that. It's a very difficult Mm -hmm. journey. And if someone is going to do that, I think they need to have traditional studies first. So if you want to, you need to be sure of your iman, sure of your ilm as it is rooted in, in Muslim opinion before looking at it. Because what you're studying usually in Western institutions is going to be opinion rooted in orientalist or sometimes even islamophobe yep. or or academics who maybe they've done really great work but it's mixed yep. mm-hmm. so it can be it can be a challenge it can be a challenge now for me i think that we are tasked with offering islamic education to people that is both founded in traditional learning but offers modern methodologies. Because it's a very, women and, and men, I suppose, who have gone to Western schools, Western institutions, they're used to a certain type of self directed learning, a certain type of thinking, a certain type of writing and reading. And much of traditional Islamic studies is very spoon fed. Mm-hmm. And that can be very frustrating and not feel stimulating enough for the Western student. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for people like me and others like me to understand that and to really set up systems and programs that both bring forth traditional foundational knowledge Mm -hmm. in a real and solid way, but with modern methodologies so that our students can engage with the material, can grow with the material, and can become those scholars of the future. We need to be doing something. To make sure that there are those future teachers and scholars for the next mm-hmm. generation, mm-hmm. and I don't so because your question was this or this, I don't know. I feel like I know for Abdul Hakim Murad Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad in England. He has a program to help those who have done very traditional learning, sort of understand English culture, mm-hmm. so they can apply it. And I, yep. if we can't apply the learning, mm-hmm. then, yeah. then how are we different than the Orientalist, even though we're believers? Yep. So. I think all of us need to be thinking about modern methodologies and really finding ways to help our students learn what is traditional but put it into practice.
2: Talking about you know modern methodologies of learning, digital religion is something that's come up a lot. Um, you wrote your dissertation in digital religion, Muslim women, leadership in, in, digital, re- in digital religion. How do you think – you wrote this before or in 2019, so you submitted it in 2019, Alhamdadiq. How do you think COVID-19 and, you know, and lockdown changed the digital religion space? Because I I really do think it did.
0: Yes. Well, I'm just so glad I finished it in 2019 (laughs) because had I extended it to 2020, I would have had to do new research Mm. because I definitely agree with you that things changed. And one of the ways they changed is that Muslims were forced to accept the concept of digital religion. Mm. I think there's still resistance. Uh, we, we recognize the tools of the digital world as important tools, but I don't think we yet understand the opportunities available to us, and as, especially women. Women are still more hesitant. There are a few who are less hesitant, but in general, when, when we sit in a jalsat alam, here, in, 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 in IRL, so to speak, in mm-hmm. real life, yeah. the, we know from the Prophet the angels surround us. We know that the angels make dua for us. Mm-hmm. We know that the angels are seeking forgiveness for us. That is a, a circle of alam or a circle of dhikr. When we sit in an online space, whatever that space is, maybe it's an Instagram video, maybe it's a Zoom class, mm-hmm. maybe it's a, uh, a discourse community, when we sit in these spaces, we have to remember that the online space belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just as much as any space that we might sit in physically. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so in remembering that and being really clear about it, we can imagine, I, I always, I've been imagining this since the early days. In fact, it was this image in my mind that really made me jump from being a digital immigrant to being, to trying to be a digital citizen, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It was a big jump for me, but I worked really hard at it because of this image, which is the image that here we are sitting together. And sometimes I'll have students around the world. And so I'll imagine the globe and all of us sitting there and imagine angels around us. Mm -hmm. And because I was in so much pain at the time for Syria and since then so much pain for all of our Muslim brothers and sisters in any place of pain. And of course, right now for Gaza, When I, I see it as a, as a form of activism mm. where we are in this circle and for that moment for that hour for that half an hour for that, those moments of ilam and dhikr the angels are surrounding the earth because they're surrounding us and perhaps mm. during that time there's protection for all sorts of things on the earth that we don't know about it's part of the unseen world Allahu alam of course but understanding the reality that the, that the, the uh, internet world is just as real, just as it is a real world, Allah is in charge of that world just as much as He's in charge of any other world, mm-hmm. any other world that we might interact in. I think it changes perspective and it might help us interact with the digital world in, in a more productive way and mm-hmm. understand the opportunities that are there for us.
1: Yeah. And having said that, uh, I guess in this IRL space. May Allah wa ta'ala accept uh, our, our work and may Allah wa ta'ala reward you for coming all this way. Uh, your, you know, your generosity of your time. May Allah wa ta'ala add barakah to your life and allow you to continue on that journey of seeking knowledge. Amen. And having said that, may the angels also ask Allah wa ta'ala for uh, our forgiveness. And with that, uh, JazakAllah khair for your time. Uh, and until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.